This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Inflation used to be a libertarian or economics nerd buzzword. Now the average person knows what inflation is. That's how bad it's gotten. And uh, this whole banking crisis that we're right in the middle of, which is, you know, a fantastic timing for this podcast, maybe, uh, I think is also opening up people's eyes to, oh, wow, another once in a lifetime banking uh, crisis in my life. Welcome back to the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Joel Valenzuela. He has famously been living exclusively on crypto since 2016, meaning he literally closed his bank account and he does not touch he does not touch fiat currency at all. And so in this episode we're going to be talking about living on crypto. He's involved in the New Hampshire Free State Project and just a lot of this stuff about where the world is going in terms of a decentralized future. So Joel, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, man? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing fantastic. And yeah, as usual, just fired up about life. (laughs) It sounds like it. We were were going before I started recording. I'm like, no, 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 we got to hit the button. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it it I guess I really got triggered by the um the new announcement that uh the US Federal Reserve is rolling out its Fed now basically central bank digital currency this July. So it's like things are heating up in the decentralized slash super centralized finance world. So yeah, it's uh just kind of got me thinking back about first principles and everything and yeah, it got me going. And when you hear announcements like that, of course, you're probably thinking, I was right, the tyranny is coming, blah, blah, blah. But how does that like really get you excited or how does that sort of change your your thinking when you, when you see these announcements? Yeah, well, ever since the beginning, when I kind of got into decentralized money, which I kind of, as a, like a teenager, I was more of a gold bug. And then as soon as... I kind of figured out a, that crypto existed back in like 2012. I kind of got hooked and then just started, you know, getting into that ever since. But ever since that, there's always been this, you know, talk about, um, you know, privacy infringements, things like that. And depending on how, you know, conspiratorial you get, or if you get any, like, uh, I guess, you know, religious insinuations about the mark of the beast that will be required to pay for things and whatever. There's always this thing in kind of the back back of people's minds about like, you need this special thing in order to transact. The government's watching everything you do. They're going to, they're going to control your every move. And it's kind of, if it's something that's sort of started to take um, shape a little bit more and more over time, Um, And then that's kind of the the value proposition of crypto was, you know, digital cash. Like anyone can use it, super easy to transact peer to peer. 
but it's digital. And more importantly, it's not government issued and no one can control it or control who uses it. And it's kind of, uh, it's something that's been very sort of a uh, hypothetical for a long time. And there's a lot of that. I feel like Wait, wait, wait. Certain- what's what's been hypothetical? The the the, that, the the central bank digital currencies or the just like the idea of living on crypto? Yeah, the I guess both of those things, right? The idea that there is some sort of a controlled um there's some sort of a government controlled sort of absolute power uh controlled down to your every single purchase, watching everything you do. That yeah. kind of more totalitarian. I guess system. it's like kind of inevitable, right? Like money is gonna be on the internet. The government's gonna kind of see what see what the transactions are doing. Obviously, it's scary in terms of them being able to shut you off or encourage certain behaviors and stuff. But it's kind of inevitable, no? Yeah, I think so. And that's it's inevitable that people will try it. I guess it's kind of like, for example, if someone. Um, gains power at some point they're going to abuse that power and if they abuse the power long enough eventually they're going to do horrible things and then eventually people will rise up and push back against that power turn over the tables and then new people will be in power and then they'll get more power and then the cycle repeats these kinds of things just tend to happen and so uh, obviously when you have a government having absolute control over the money that people use at some point, they're going to use it for all kinds of abusive things, which is kind of one of those reasons why uh, cryptocurrencies got founded. I mean, in the Bitcoin Genesis block, there was uh, there was a bank run message coded into the the first ever Bitcoin block, and for that exact reason, this is kind of freedom money. This is our way of getting away from this. And so now we get to today. I feel like it's been sort of theoretical back then, where it's like, oh. This could be bad. We need to do something. And then we start getting some very rudimentary tools to do something. And then it still is kind of this gulf between what we're saying, the bad things that could happen, and the good things we need to do to prevent that. And then every year, those two get closer and closer and closer together until Mm -hmm. finally we get to where, you know, for example, in 2015, I started exclusively earning cryptocurrency. And so that for me was that, that, okay, that pivotal transition moment. And then here we are in 2023 when we're starting to get this uh, government surveillance payment method that does all kinds of nefarious things. And it's just uh, like they're meeting, they're finally meeting. They're meeting. Joel, uh, Joel, I have to try to attempt to be a good uh, moderator of the discussion. And I'd love to just have you do a little bit of an intro into who you are for for people that aren't aware. You definitely queued it up a bit talking about how you started earning exclusively crypto in 2015, but do you want to just give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, so uh, I am a cryptocurrency and decentralized tech advocate and consultant and educator, and that's kind of what I do. I grew up in the north of Mexico. Uh, my parents were Silicon Valley yuppies, and they, before it was cool, before everyone was doing it, they decided to become expats in a Latin American country. But rather than um, just rather the, rather than do the digital nomad thing, because that wasn't really a thing in the early '90s, 
um, they decided to become cattle ranchers. And so I grew up on a cattle ranch in Sonora in the north of Mexico. That's pretty dope. Yeah, I mean it's it wasn't back then. It was um, <laughs> it was kind it was kind of like why are you forsaking all the cool things that we have in Southern California for just this life of being a a developing country agricultural worker? And are they uh, were were they like Mennonites? No, uh, my dad was a, uh, a programmer at Hewlett Packard. My mom owned a newspaper. It's just my dad who grew up in the north of Mexico. And it was the family's ranch. And even though they were doing well with their, their careers in Southern California, um, they just decided to get a change of pace and, you know, just decided to embrace a more of a quality of life, get away from all that, you know, all the stuff that's now infinitely memed about the Southern California uh, Silicon Valley culture. And so they just decided to kind of do that and just go back to the farm. And so, uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago and my mom is still there on the ranch right now running the thing. So that's a pretty long track record, like 30 plus years, I think at this point. That's awesome. And uh, you don't have to tell us specifically where in Sonora, but was it like on the coast or like near the border or kind of like way inland? It was um, in the mountains, about a 90 miles south of the U.S. border. So like right around the center of the state, I guess, but just the northern center of the state. And yeah, I didn't actually go. It wasn't until after I'd moved out. I was about 16 when I left uh, Sonora. It wasn't until later I came back to visit that I even went to the coastline ever. But yeah, it's a it's a beautiful state. Mm-hmm. So you were you were born in Mexico then? Uh, no, I got there when I was about three years old. So. I was, I, all my memories basically start there, but I wasn't officially born there. Okay. But I'm guessing you're a dual citizen. Yep. Indeed. That's cool. And was growing up a dual citizen, did that sort of, um, teach you a little bit about your perspectives on the nation state and just this, this idea of, you know, uh, like a cross border lifestyle, which I feel like could feed into the the whole crypto thing that came later. Yeah, definitely. Uh, having your foot in two worlds kind of reminds you that the world's a much bigger place than either world. Mm. And so I've crossed uh, national borders thousands of times in my life because um, just about every week we would go up to the U.S. side to do some purchases and things like that. And so that would be at least two crossings in a day, sometimes more. Um, sometimes you'd walk across be like walk to one side for lunch and then walk to the other side for business. And just living on the border really kind of shows that there's two different worlds that are kind of um, interoperable for lack of a better term. It's not, it's not like this incredibly crazy foreign thing. A lot of people operate in both sides. Um, mm-hmm. For example, I remember the McDonald's on the U S side would take pesos as well as dollars. That's cool. And then in, almost everywhere on the Mexican side would take dollars. Some of them would take dollars at a, a, they'd have a premium. They charge a little bit more for that, but just the, because people know that they can then spend them on the other side where they're probably going to have family, whatever, or they can easily get them exchanged. And so this whole dual currency system also kind of makes you think that, you know, it's not like there's one, the one money that's only going to exist, but also uh, my grandmother had some old coins 
there were the old pesos and they just as a child i was asking like why aren't these any good and it's like well that that peso failed and so then there's the new peso and this one is you know this one works and so in my head i always knew not only can there be more than one money not only can people use them interchangeably but they can fail <laughs> they can just become worthless and that's something that i think that uh it's Mostly Americans are the only, some of the only people who can really grasp, can't really grasp the idea of their currency failing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Like Europeans, they can kind of get it. They've dealt with multiple currencies, blah, blah, blah. But Americans, they just have nothing to reference it on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I'm in uh, Sinaloa State right now, uh, not too far from Sonora, uh, just uh, nice. maybe like a couple hundred kilometers or something. But um, uh, I may or may not have uh, grown up in Canada and I'd go down to the States and uh, one year it would be like 80 cents to the dollar. The next year it's 90 cents to the dollar. The next year it's even and then back down to 80. And so it's just always arbitrarily changing. And it, it definitely taught me a lot about arbitrage and just like different rules in different jurisdictions. Because when I go to the States, I'd like buy like cartons of cigarettes and then I'd go back to Canada and like sell them for like double, triple and make, make some side money doing that back in high school and stuff like that. So and seeing how much cheaper the alcohol was in the States. And so I, I also kind of got a, some of that vibe earlier on. So I know I know a lot of, uh, about what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that people don't realize is that there's, uh, first off, people don't realize that Mexico has different states, just like the U.S., and there are quite a few differences there. But also just how different jurisdictions can be and people's lives can be from that. I mean, I, I have never been to Canada. That's one of the rare countries I have not been to. Even I've been to you know, Romania, Austria, all kinds of places like that, but never Canada, even though I live like four four hours away. But uh, between U.S. states, even there's a lot of differences, and you see people mm -hmm. make business decisions uh, based on the imaginary lines that people draw. I would say the government's draw, saying like this is our territory. If you step across this line, there's a uh, there's repercussions, and it's kind of funny because in order to drive from some parts of New Hampshire to other parts of New Hampshire, a lot of times the highway just goes through Massachusetts. And uh, Massachusetts has extremely stringent gun laws compared to the US, to New Hampshire. And so you have to just remember, don't have your gun in your car when you're doing the, that specific drive or, you know, just be really careful not to get pulled over because when you're under on this imaginary line part of the road, you know, it just, things are all different. And it's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a trip to people. Mm -hmm. So you live in New Hampshire now. Yes. Are you calling in from New Hampshire at this moment? Absolutely. That's awesome. I dude, how have you not been to Montreal? Uh, I just been busy. I mean, I've been, <laughs> yeah, there's no other way of saying that really, because you know, I, in, I was living in, I lived kind of all over the world a little bit. And then I was most recently living in Phoenix for most of my mid twenties. And then, um, in 2013, I moved to New Hampshire for this thing called the Free State Project. And so 
2013. I mean, I'm coming up on 10 years in just a couple months and it's just been a whirlwind of like, you know, moving to a new place, you know, getting a house, you know, getting into crypto, living all off of crypto, trying to build a business, all this kind of stuff, just a decade goes by like that. And so all the places I traveled since I moved have been for explicit work trips or other obligations. So the whole, man, let's just go up to Canada for, for some fun has just never been in, in the, um, in the cards yet. Although this, this might be the year I do have a friend who's in Toronto and I, for you know a lot of reasons cannot um cannot li- cannot leave the country so if i want to see him i got to go to him so there you go dude i i definitely recommend montreal um it's got to be three and a half hour drive from you maybe depending on where you are in the state and i think you'll find it a very enriching experience you're walking around just a couple hours away everyone's speaking french and stuff it'll be cool yeah, I did used to live in France at one point, so I used to be fluent, so I could probably dust that off and see if I can get it to work. There you go, Cessa. That's awesome. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about the uh, New Hampshire Free State Project for the people that are un- unfamiliar with it? Yeah, so basically, um, Jason Sorens in his doctoral thesis had this idea where he basically posited that um, the ideas of radical freedom of basically the maximum uh, role of government should just be to protect property rights and defend from like outside invading armies. And that's it. Uh, that idea is held by so f- relatively few people so that voters elect people who, you know, usually along the right or the left kind of paradigm lines or the Republican Democrat party lines in the U S for example. And neither side gets to actually both sides, I guess, contain nuggets of freedom, but for the most part, it's anything but. And so basically you, all these arguments say, you know, economic theories, all these other things say, well, freedom is the best condition for humanity. It really provides the best outcomes, the best social outcomes, the most prosperity, etc. But you can't actually try that out unless you get group consensus through democracy or, or representative democracy, democracy, I should say, to implement those. So instead, so what if we just got all the people who thought a certain way, who believed in maximum liberty, you just got them all to move to one particular spot, especially a low population state and then vote basically and get elected to a local office, all those kinds of things. And basically implement those ideas of freedom and absolutely minimal government and just see what happens. And just, I guess as a experimentation ground as a breeding ground for sort of showing what a free society could look like. And then the rest of the world can kind of have this example and then follow suit. I guess it's sort of like a, microcosm of what was the American model where you have something that formerly was much more pro-freedom than anywhere else in the world. And then you had a whole lot of the world then started uh, copying the or liberalizing and just following the kind of American model with various, you know, tweaks, but still, and a lot of the, I guess, 20th centuries um, and before, I guess the 19th century as well, a lot of the the exponential growth in 
standard of living and survivability and prosperity and things like that across the world. Obviously, very uneven. It's not been oh, awesome across the board, but all that it can be kind of um, can be sort of traced to something similar to the modern free state model, which is mm-hmm. America. Of course, America had a lot of problems with it. Still does is probably accruing more problems, but basically the idea was that, and so um, the Free State Project was formed, which is just a nonprofit organization that served to educate people about this idea, and they picked New Hampshire of all the U.S. states as a one that's you know has, is well developed, live is, free or die, yeah, just primed for kind of. I mean, if you all moved to Rhode Island, for example. That'd be a little bit bumpy, but if you move to already what is one of the freest spots in the in the world, and then you just blend right in and kind of reinforce what made it free, so that's that's kind of what happened. And what ended up, the idea shifted a little bit to where it became a little bit more general purpose than just let's move and participate in elections. Although that's still kind of part of it for some people, um, it's more just. Let's all live and be around like-minded people and then just see what the, the free market of ideas does. Hmm. And so the, the Free State Project, do they, do they have like a specific piece of land or a farm or is it the whole state or there's no land at all, but it's just like headquartered in New Hampshire or how, or how does that work? It's uh, just an idea. So what happened is... There's a nonprofit organization that is mostly run by people who already moved for this for this idea, but the nonprofit organization mostly just maintains a website, and that's about it. And can and kind of uh, helps with some resources, but mostly it's an entirely grassroots movement. So there's people that just show up and just decide to move, like anyone else who moves to any other state, except there's a network. Again, not maintained by the Free State Project organization, but just by the people who are here. There's just a network of groups of people who will help people unload their moving truck and get settled. They'll help people find jobs and be on the lookout for apartments and just basically act as an intentional voluntary community. And that really does help uh, people kind of get going. And then obviously uh, through hearing about it online and through the grapevine, et cetera, then you get more people who want to come and it just kind of goes from there. Okay. Gotcha. And so do people tend to congregate a little bit in like, um, any of the specific cities within New Hampshire? Uh, yes, sort of right now it's become much, much looser, but in, in the beginning, um, you got obviously people going everywhere, but, uh, Keene was a big hot spot because, uh, uh, Ian Freeman and Mark Edge of Free Talk Live, which is a, a pretty big uh, nationwide radio station, uh, moved from Florida up to Keene. And they did a whole lot of, uh, I guess, what would activism that would uh, resonate a lot more with the radical left is in a lot of civil disobedience, a lot of protests, a lot of things like that. And that was kind of also a lot of controversy uh, associated with that kind of stuff. But so then a lot of people started congregating in the Manchester area, which is more in the center of the state instead of the, the western side. Mm-hmm. And then when I came, I came to the Manchester area originally. Uh, but then that's when a, a contingent of people who are a little bit, I guess, a little bit more normie, if that's even a thing, 
uh, a little more life together, a little more all that um, started to congregate in the coastal regions. And so that's where I ended up uh, settling more long term. And so there's communities everywhere. There's obviously the center of the state. There's the coast. There's a, a keen community. There's a few people, a few different groups up in the north countries. Um, all in all, it's hard to get an, an estimate on how many people moved because obviously, as a loose decentralized organization, anyone could do it. And libertarians are uh, very notorious about not wanting to give up on their privacy. So estimates are somewhere between like the five to 10,000 range of people who have moved explicitly for the project. That's pretty cool. So you're saying near the, the New Hampshire is a very small coastline. That's where there seems to be like the most um, congregation right now. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily the most congregation. It is kind of becoming, it's kind of one of the more vibrant and up and coming communities. It's not, it's within, let, let's say the coast, because there's only 14 miles of coastline. There's, there's Hampton Beach and there's Portsmouth, basically. Yeah, right. there's a few towns. About, uh, there's a go Seabrook on the south, and then you go, there's a few Hamptons. There's Hampton Beach, Hampton, Northampton. Then you get Rye, and then you get Portsmouth, Newcastle, and then, then you hit Maine. That's like the ocean. But as far as the what's considered the coast is basically anywhere like 20 to maybe 20 to 30 minutes drive from the ocean. So like that little area right there is considered the coast. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the most densely populated part of the whole state. So probably around um, a third of the state's population is right around there. If you expand to just the whole southern part of the state, that's like well over half or most people. And then up in the the north regions where it gets a lot colder and it's a lot more rural, it's, it's pretty um, pretty sparse. I've been to Hampton Beach several times uh, in the I'm summer. Sorry. That that place is wild, man. It's like bikers <laughs> and like partiers. It's insane. It's it, it almost feels like Cancun. Yeah, um, Hampton Beach is a it's an interesting spot. It's not typical of the rest of the state. It's it's kind of known as the mecca for the white trash in New Hampshire that or New <laughs> England in general because it's mostly not locals it's mostly people from the neighboring states who come there to kind of party if you go to any of the other beaches in the state they're much more locals only but not not like private beaches but they're they're much more the locals go there there's not a lot of just wild kind of stuff it's much more uh you know much more buttoned up i guess you could say although you know for for all the good and bad that that means Yes, sir. I think there's a place. I don't know if you know. It's called. Um, I think it's like Brown's Seafood. Brown's Fried Clams there in Hampton Beach. Pretty famous. Yeah, probably been. I like fried clams. Okay, yeah. let's start moving on to some more <laughs> substantive stuff. So, where should we start? So, New Hampshire. How how are you liking New Hampshire overall? By the way, like you you've got, have you gotten used to the cold and everything? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I the the part in, of Mexico I grew up in was more desert than anything, but mountain desert. So about every other year we'd get some snow. So it wasn't like I never seen snow, but it definitely was a little bit of an adjustment coming from Phoenix, which, you know, is like the surface of the sun. And then here you are with a place with actually four seasons. I really enjoy it. I mean, we're just getting through the tail end of winter just now. And 
it's sometimes winter gets a little bit long, but the rest it's, it's all good. I mean, as long as you're kind of prepared for it, some people just can't take the cold, but it, this state is war as warmer or within five degrees of, I think half of the U S states. So it's not exceptionally colder. It's just compared to a lot of places like say Ohio and Illinois and Nebraska and the Dakotas and Wyoming and Idaho, just a lot of different places. It's actually a lot, a lot more pleasant, but you do get snow. It is a thing. I think people who just cannot take the prospect of putting on a coat every day for, for months at a time might want to try to find like a timeshare somewhere in Florida or Latin America or something for, you know, mm-hmm. a few, a couple months and then you're pretty much set. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the arguments, right? Where it's like, if you're really optimizing for maximum freedom, New Hampshire is a good amount of the way there. But do you, do you think it's really like maximizing freedom or sort of like a balance between freedom and a little bit of a high trust society with decent infrastructure that you might not get in like Paraguay or Panama or something? Yeah, I think it's, um, I would say it's both, which kind of, it's funny because you kind of asked an either or, but it's definitely, I would say it maximizes freedom, which freedom is a very, I guess it's an objective term, but as far as like a single metric, it's very subjective as far as all the different levels, right? So uh, the thing is, I do think it's the best balance of you get to live in like, modern society and safety and all that plus maximum freedom plus mass maximum sustainability and security in that freedom long term and that's kind of thing so like growing up in mexico uh, mexico is not a particularly free country compared like on paper um depending on who you are where you are i mean if you're up in el norte if you're up in the, the northern places there's like no one around it's just very you know, very wild west, I guess. And so you get a high degree of freedom there, but then, you know, something could happen. There could be some cartel action that impinges on your freedom or something. There could be the corrupt cops there. there, There's always a thing that could come in there. And a friend of mine was a, a very happy freedom expat in Panama, loving it. And then, uh, in 2020, uh, he's under curfew and can't leave his house. Mm-hmm. And so then he just leaves Panama because he's like, I hate this. So the thing ab- about it's one of those things that like the love hate relationship with what is considered the United States is real because on the one hand you have probably the largest, most powerful government the world has ever seen that because of all that absolute power corrupts a lot and does a lot of really bad things and takes a lot of your earnings and things like that. And it's very desirable to get out of un, out from underneath that. On the other hand, um, there's some things that exist in the U.S. that don't really exist anywhere else. And the two things are, first off, absolute um, guarantees of free speech, which I know are being infringed in things like social media censorship and things like that. There's They're trying to get rid of those, but at least you have an absolute right to free speech on paper. And the other thing is the the right to bear arms. As far as I know, and maybe you know more about this, but there's 
I don't know of any other country other than the U.S. that basically has, I wouldn't say no gun laws, but basically you can just go buy a gun and just carry it. You don't need a permit for it. Um, do you know of any other country that does that? Legally, I should say. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I find that in Latin America, the license is often attached to the gun. So basically you buy the gun and then you just register the gun. Whereas when, if and when there's a license in the States, it's just like you're licensed to have guns or not have guns or whatever. And you kind of have more optionality because I, I remember I was in Paraguay and I wanted to just like get a, a gun license just like just in case, you know, where they're like, no, you have to buy the gun first and then we put a license on it. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't actually want to buy a gun. I just wanted the freedom. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah. So that's a, that's the thing is um, in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, like that tri-state area, uh, you could just buy a gun for including a private sale from anyone. Like you just, your cousin wants to sell you his, you pay cash for it. Totally legal. You can carry open or concealed anywhere in that tri-state area with no permits. Just there you go. And I mean, obviously that's pretty nice. Not everyone is of course, um, not everyone of course is like hoping or thinking they're going to need to use it, especially since the U the New Hampshire in particular is extremely safe. Like some people don't even lock their doors in some of these towns. Uh, but the thing is those two things are more like when I talk about um, like the move here movement and like the intentional community kind of thing and crypto as far as if you're if you're conceptually ahead of present reality it's like investing it's like you buy something that's not worth a lot today but it's going to be worth a lot in the future and that's the thing about having a first and a second amendment um, is something that the u.s has that is kind of freedom insurance as far as this is it can only get so bad as long as we have these. Whereas, for example, if I were to, you know, move to Colombia, let's just pick a con country, and I got more freedom there than I do here right now, I trust that that freedom is going to to be there less than I would if I had those two things. And so, um, I think that honestly, it's it's sort of an open season for which Latin American country can get to a below U.S. level of government corruption and implement a first and second amendment as far reaching and radical as the U S has, because if that's the, that's the one thing that I think is holding back a whole lot of people from committing to, you know, the, I wouldn't even say the expat life, but just living permanently and just relocating to someplace like that, because it's that sort of security that you're going to continue to enjoy the freedoms that, you know, you kind of have, long term. I mean, that is one thing that I think that there's a um, there's a very big difference in the freedom experience, depending on who you are and what you do. I feel like if you act as a sort of digital nomad, a semi-permanent guest in a whole bunch of uh, countries around, say, Latin America, Africa, wherever, I feel like you enjoy a very high degree of freedom. It's just when you start trying to grow roots, you want to participate in local politics, you want to do that kind of stuff, then that's when you start to run into a, a whole different sort of a world. And so, yeah, I'm obviously I'm very happy to be exactly where I am, but I, I do think that um, 
being able to live in other places that might have better freedom in some areas is a huge plus. It just there's that that trade off and that mm-hmm. that kind of insurance, the freedom insurance of being able to say whatever I want and no one can can censor me and be able to defend myself and have that sort of tyranny insurance and it, which isn't just a, <laughs> like a legal right. It's also a cultural kind of a thing where you ever you bought a gun with crypto. Um, I'm trying to think actually, I can't remember which ones I have or haven't. It's like bullets, 0.01 ETH per bullet. <laughs> like- there, there are actually some, <laughs> I do know where I could buy at least ammo with crypto. I'm sure I'm sure I'll find some gun stores. In fact, I need to start approaching gun stores because they're being censored by the payment processors. Like some mm-hmm. Visa sure. cards and stuff won't be used. Sure, it's there. a high risk so, industry, right? Yeah, exactly. So prime candidates, um, especially when we have this whole uh CBDC thing on the very near horizon, that yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty uh getting a little crazy out there. That's true. You're going to get a letter in the mail being like, bro, you bought 10 guns this year. What's going on? That's what mm-hmm. the CB, C, how do you, Central Bank Digital Currency, CBDC. Yes. I haven't said CBDC. it that many times. CBDC. Yeah, you need to say it a million times for it to really roll off the tongue like that. But then again, if you're not in my industry, you probably don't need to. How many guns you got? Well, I, I that's another thing they say. I plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I should say the, the, Proper freedom person's uh, response is not enough. <laughs> Never enough. <laughs> okay. And what about like uh, second passports, residencies in different countries? Conceptually, you're 100% of the way there. Have you taken steps uh, to do that? You don't have to divulge anything you don't want to, but do you, you must see the value in that, right? Yeah. Um, so I am a dual citizen for US and Mexico. And so I already kind of got that going. Um, I have the possibility because of my ancestry to possibly get Spanish or Italian citizenship as well. But it's, I guess it's on like the long to-do list of things. Uh, the thing is, uh, one of those things that, one of those reasons why people put up with a lot of the nonsense that the U.S. federal government inflicts upon them is because that blue passport is very valuable in a whole lot of ways. And so basically I have not had issues traveling almost anywhere I want to because of that. There's a couple places I'm sure that would be rough, such as for example, Venezuela or, you know, maybe some Arab countries. So, or there's a, there's a lot that, you know, maybe I would want to use the Mexican passport for that one. But generally speaking, having that, I think is hugely valuable because um, I think it's especially valuable for uh, for people in areas where they don't really trust that their regime is going to be all that stable for very much longer. It helps to to you know, especially going to do something risky. Now, the U.S. is very bipolar in this kind of way because on the one hand there's a lot you can just get away with here and you're fine your rights are the same kind of but then there's a few things that can really get you in in deep trouble and it's kind of difficult it's like all the the financial crimes kind of thing can be really rough Mm -hmm. and so and also obviously 
if you're doing whatever Edward Snowden did, you're doing whatever Julian Assange did or whatever, then they're going to come after you with kind of everything they got. It's, it's not quite the same as if you get, you know, if you get arrested or whatever for weed, then Canada doesn't like, like you there anymore. It's not like they're going to come and find you, you know? So yeah, it's, I really think that having as many passports as you can is obviously, you know, a great security strategy. And especially um, when you have the, the, that coveted blue passport uh, and you have to pay so much money, even if you don't live there, um, that's in order to, in order, it becomes tricky to replace when you decide to get rid of it. So like, Mm -hmm. for example, if you want to renounce your U.S. citizenship for usually tax purposes, uh, then you need to, you need to figure out how to get citizenships in maybe a few different countries now, or in some of them are more difficult Mm -hmm. or some of them, like if you want to be like, uh, like Bitcoin, Jesus, Roger Ver and get the, go the St. Kitts Mm -hmm. route, Mm -hmm. you need to throw down some money for that. And, you know, so yeah, there's a, it just becomes a little bit trickier. So, you know, the more the merrier, it gives you more freedom to decide your kind of jurisdiction. And, you know, especially when you start making a certain amount of money that you don't want to, you just don't want to be throwing at this ever hungry beast of the U.S. federal government when you're living on some beach in a foreign country, you know, it might make sense to do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you'd probably agree that at some point in wealth, it's just a no brainer, right? If you got 10 million cash, 20 million cash, 150k for a passport cbi is like a no-brainer yeah it's the um it's the renouncing part that becomes a little tricky because first of all if you renounce your u.s citizenship um then for you know for tax purposes obviously that's great but then if you don't live in the u.s that's great but if you do want to at some point live in the u.s at some point you got to be a permanent resident again and then you're back in the same boat so uh, that's that's the kind of a tricky thing, which, yeah. uh, by the way, but by fact, the way, they're, for listeners, they're mutually exclusive concepts like you can acquire additional passports without renouncing. Um, yeah, but so, some people want to acquire additional passports because you can only renounce American if you have another one to fall back on. Right. So they're 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 different things. But yeah. Yeah, I would say probably like you wouldn't want to renounce unless Ideally, unless you had at least another first world passport or tier A passport, rather, be it Europe, be it Canada, something like that. Well, uh, fun fact, uh, my dad did end up renouncing his U.S. citizenship at one point because he was a dual citizen. But this Mexico made you have only one citizenship if you wanted to own like land. Really? So in order to own the ranch he had to renounce his U.S. citizenship, but then the law changed at some point. And so then he ended up uh, petitioning the State Department for citizenship back, and they just like mailed him a passport like a couple months later, and that, that was it. That's so it. that was kind of crazy because I do remember through many border crossings, he would always be showing his green card. And I'm like, why does he have to show some something that none of us have to show? So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to becoming a Mexican citizen one day so that I can own uh, beachfront land in my own name without using a trust. Yeah, I mean, that would be nice. Let me get that spot in Tulum or Mazatlan, something like that. We'll see. 
It'll be a secret spot. The podcast won't know until after it happens. Yeah, invite everyone for an after party there one day. <laughs> My Latin Life conference. Um, dude, we, we, we definitely have to talk more about crypto and about uh, getting in early. I know you wanted to make that a bit of a, a theme for the podcast. Um, so I guess just as a, a segue, I think getting in early for residencies and citizenships, now is the time. These things are getting more difficult every year. So I think the, the, the whole like second residency thing is definitely a get in early type situation. But I think you had a couple more ideas about how you, you, Joel, like you're, you're always trying to get in early, get in at the ground floor, be a early adopter. And I think you have a theory around how being an early adopter has uh, a lot of benefits. Obviously anyone that was a early adopter with, with like Bitcoin, for example, did super well, but do you want to give us a bit of your, your theory on, on being an early adopter? Yeah, there's two kinds of, I guess, early adoption type thing. There's, um, there's use and investment and I'm definitely not someone who's, you know, focuses a lot on investment. I'm definitely not someone who made it rich off of crypto, which is kind of maybe surprising considering how long I've been into it because, uh, there's just like if you if you financially invest, for example, you put money into something that's not worth a ton today and, and has some risk of going to zero, but at some point you get exponentially more out of that in the future. And sometimes if you're early on things, you get, I guess, non-financial benefits, although they could definitely translate to financial, but you get certain benefits that translate kind of later. And um, so for example, um, there's a certain quality of life thing in being an expat that at least if you're, you know, if you're doing it the right way that you get that other people might not get like the, the cliche of the big city life and the suit and tie job and all that kind of stuff and all the stress that goes along with it and working the rat race. And if you get out of that, for example, before the digital nomad boom of the last few years, especially um, you get out of that early, you get to get many years of a quality life and kind of figure things out. And also let's be honest, radically changing your life in some way, such as becoming an expat, um, take some learning how to get the most out of, and if you can kind of figure it out early and then you can kind of get some, you know, deals on, for example, property, like you move to, uh, someplace in a country that doesn't that's not super popular with tourists and then when it becomes an expat hotspot and it just becomes kind of more crowded and expensive and yep. stuff you're, you're already there before so that there's that kind of thing but generally speaking um i mean i view on a societal level and on a personal level i view freedom as probably the most important thing we can have um it's so on a society level, obviously, I think that having freedom makes it a, makes the economy run a lot better, makes a lot more people happy, makes a, a safer, you know, less totalitarian spot. I mean, there's a lot of great things there. But on the personal level, being able to live life the way you want it is, in my view, just like all that really matters in life. Because uh, everyone, everyone is born and everyone dies and everything you have in between are days and weeks, months and years. And 
whatever happens in those time in that time you spend that time doing that's why they say you're spending time because you give in the time and you don't get it back and so whatever you spend your life doing that's all you got and so having the freedom to decide what you do is super important because otherwise you spend giant chunks of that finite resource which is your life doing things that just you you're not going to you're not going to really be happy about when you're old so there's a certain part of um, investing in freedom early as far as investing in learning how to be free and doing things like that, that I think really helps. So um, the thing about cryptocurrency, right, is pretty much, I believe the majority of dollars um, in existence have been printed in, or a significant portion of them in just the last couple of years. Now, people's life savings are being kind of whittled away um, at breakneck speed all over the world. I mean, the U.S. is one of the better countries in the world in this regard, which is really sad. But uh, you got inflation, and then you got this sort of um, central bank digital currency threat that's always been kind of looming on the horizon. Um, for example, MasterCard now has a tracking tool that lets you track your carbon footprint based on your purchases but which is a helpful tool i guess but also more importantly means you're getting a score based on what you're what you're buying and how you live your life and so your personal choices could impact your ability to actually live out that lifestyle and which mm -hmm. gets pretty scary but then i guess it gets worse um you're talking about like that human credit score basically yeah basically like a social credit score social which social credit score I think people get a little bit too think if they're just going to copy and paste uh, whatever system that China is using um, might not look like that. But I mean, there is that, for example, and in this new um, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Federal Reserve is rolling out a payment rail called FedNow, supposedly this July, which will integrate into all the banks. Supposedly by the end of 2025, they'll get all of them updated with this. But it has it's one of these things they they're literally marketing as a value add feature for that that basically um, will allow you to control what people spend money on, um, and it literally says this is extremely I'm reading right is this is extremely useful when trying to track down a debt that needs to be paid by someone who owes you money. The system re will require will require all the details about how much money the person owes you and specific transaction-related information, such as what account number it was sent from originally. And the system then records this information in its database, which means that if they try to use these funds for any purpose other than paying off their debt, there will be consequences. So that's just reading in their own words, right? That means that we're coming up on a world where everything gets tracked and all our purchases are logged and whatever is viewed to be not in the best interests of not you, but the powers that be the, the government and the banks and whatever else that is recorded. And then that is sometimes explicitly prohibited. So let's just say, I don't know, you like to travel Latin America a lot. Let's just say you live in the U S you like to travel and have a good time, whatever. Uh, if at some point, you, you work really hard, you don't spend a lot of money, you live below your means because uh, you really like that feeling of just you know being on the beach or wherever and kind of having a just traveling and seeing the world. 
with the little time we all have on this earth. And if all of a sudden that jacks up your carbon score and you're like, well, you're, you're getting on that plane for frivolous reasons a whole lot. We're going to not allow you to fly now. Now you're stuck. Now it starts to be bad. And then now what you've been basically saving up for your whole life, not only is all your, uh, all your savings being inflated away, but even that that you do have, you can't even use that to go go travel and live out your dreams. So it's it's getting to a dicey spot. And so that's why I really think we need some alternative before this becomes the way everyone has to live their lives. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah, long it definitely rant. makes sense. And here's the thing about crypto, though, is if at any point the government just says transacting in crypto is illegal and you can go to jail for it, how many people are still going to end up using crypto? Very few, right? Because of the the risk involved of, of going to jail. So how do you think about that? Like if they just introduce the CBDC and then they just outlaw crypto? Well, I mean, how many people in the U.S. smoke weed? <laughs> you think it's a weed thing where it's just like, yeah, we like it, though. Like, we're just going to keep doing it. Well, as as someone, so I have, I'm not a big cannabis user. Um, I have not really been. And as such, I am also kind of a despite all the crazy stuff I'm talking about doing on the, literally the entirety of this podcast, other than that stuff, I'm not a very high risk individual. And so it blows my mind already that people for many years, just to get a little high would basically risk prison, risk becoming felons, deal with like back alley, you know, weed dealers or whatever. It blows my mind that anyone would do that, but yet, millions and millions did it over the years and yep. the war on drugs drugs won it just happened so where there's a demand so there will be a supply and you know life will find a way i think that people will kind of do that stuff um i first off this is kind of thing where if you need to kind of uh, exist in the agorist world or the world of intentional gray markets um, you can, and people do this all the time. I don't know a single small business that reports 100% of every bit of their activity on their, their forms. I'm pretty sure, uh, like I, I was a martial art instructor for many years in a previous life. Nice. And I believe that not one, not once did I get every single time I got paid, uh, was under the table <laughs> or, you know, just, ah, it's all right. You know, and people are already doing that kind of stuff because they can with cash and there's a use for that kind of thing. I really do believe that people continue to do this, especially when um, technology is a lot better for this. Uh, But beyond that, I also think that just the probability that decentralized crypto gets like outright banned is very low in most of the world because first of all, when you do something that drastic, you kind of add a crazy amplifying effect to it. It's like the Streisand effect, kind of shock the system. And then people are like, oh, well, well, what is this crazy thing? And then, you know, banned in the US, you can't even like that becomes like a narrative and it becomes, it really solidifies the value proposition of decentralized tech Mm -hmm. is if it's 
kind of explicitly the government's afraid of it. But also, a lot of people in Congress own a lot of crypto. A lot of their constituents <laughs> own a lot of crypto. It's just, it's kind of such a big part of the whole you know system. And for example, you when you have like a, a Federal Reserve branch who's hiring blockchain developers, where do they get those blockchain developers from? From the crypto ecosystem, from the people that are around. And it just... At some point, there's just only so much you can realistically do. That's something that even in in dictatorships, uh, they have to operate in a a, a certain semi free market environment, as it were. Although, I mean, obviously not at all. But in that, they have to. There's only so far you can push your people as a dictator before they will rise up and just kill you. It just it's always that that kind of ultimate thing and we've seen that with constant with countless dictatorships all over the world um this kind of thing happens over and over again and i think that's one reason why uh, that that real threat of that has played for example pretty strongly into mexico's history so um i don't know how much you know about uh mexican politics which in the modern day i don't really ever since i moved away but there was this guy called Colosio who was running for president, I believe, in the 90s. And he was the, the Mexico had one party rule for almost a century. The PRI won every single election. Mm-hmm. And the, the only reason that ended is because their front runner, uh, Colosio, was starting to get a little bit too real about these proposed reforms. People thought he was like, oh, he's the hope and change candidate, but he's all, he'll be our guy. And then he, basically was too serious about actually reforming the government. So his own party had him assassinated and people got really upset. And if you go around Sonora, you'll see almost every town will have a bust of Colosio somewhere in the town square. He's like their local hero because he's from Sonora. And uh, basically they'd been stealing every single election. And in 2000, they could not steal anymore because they knew that they would have literal blood on their hands. So they allowed uh, Vicente Fox to get elected. And so that real like, oh, we have to stop doing horrible things because we're afraid we're going to, to die is kind of a real thing. And I I think that at some point you just have to realize there's only so far you can push uh, the boundaries of you know, what people put up with. And if people, are, there's already economic unrest. There's already, inflation used to be a libertarian or econ- economics nerd buzzword now the average person knows what inflation is that's how bad it's gotten and uh, this whole banking crisis that we're right in the middle of which is you know a fantastic timing for this podcast maybe uh i think is also opening up people's eyes to oh wow another once in a lifetime banking uh crisis in my lifetime hey everybody hey everybody quick break from the podcast to tell you about language blend the best new way to learn spanish Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America, and Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. And so all this is just kind of feeding into this whole thing of, oh, well, we need alternative money before this whole thing fails. 
So I don't think that's a really long-winded rant on why I don't think that the government is going to be able to ban crypto in any kind of realistic way. Okay. You think it's unstoppable, basically? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, there's something like an idea whose time has come is pretty unstoppable. And this is definitely an idea whose time has come. Just like the idea that you don't have to live where you were born. You don't have to even live the in the place where you moved to after you were born. You can live anywhere you want. That idea has come. The idea that you don't have to just arbitrary live somewhere and whatever the ideological makeup of your neighbors is decides your destiny. That you can't live around like-minded people and create a society based on the values of those like-minded people. That idea has come. There's a lot of ideas that have really come of age very recently, I should say. They're starting to come of age, and I just don't think there's any going back on any of those. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely tough to stop technology. Yeah, and ideas especially. The thing about cryptos, cryptos, depending on the crypto for sure, but it's a pretty resilient technology. uh, But the big thing behind it is the ideology of radical freedom of we, we have the ability to do whatever we want. We don't want people to tell us what to do, you know? And uh, one thing, for example, that is really kind of taken the world by storm a little bit is this thing called DeFi or decentralized finance, which basically is all the um, financial instruments and things like that, that people use um, banks and things like that for all packaged into a decentralized protocol that anyone can kind of use. And it sort of reminds me, a a friend of mine, his intro into crypto was, it's a very, um, (laughs) very funny how this, it's very simplistically funny how this works, but it's, you know, it's true. Uh, He was kind of have a a young 20 something year old. He starts approaching 30, sees a couple of grays in his beard. And he's like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now. I'm a, I, I need to do adult things. I need to grow up. What do adults do? Well, they invest. I should figure out how to invest. And it was right around the Snapchat IPO. And he just goes to his bank and says, I want to buy, I want to invest in Snapchat. And they just laugh at him like, you're not an accredited investor. You can't do this. And it just hits him like, oh, I can't. And then he hears, oh, but he hears about this thing called Bitcoin that you can just buy. Anyone can buy it. And it just clicks. Like this is something power to the people and people want to be able to trade to invest in assets they want to get yield from assets they want to be able to trade them for each other they want to get loans without a credit score they just and you can do all this kind of stuff with a decentralized protocol today and if it's banned in a certain country you just flip on your vpn and just do it on another one and i i think that once you have something that powerful out there people are not going to just stop and just be like, well, I don't know. The government doesn't like this. I mean, people also risk prison for downloading movies and music. So at some point when it's that easy, I mean, I, admittedly, uh, smoking weed is a little harder to come by in a very illegal society. But it still was everywhere. But file sharing, if, it's, if, you're, if using decentralized money and finance is as easy as BitTorrent was back in the day. There's just like no hope for stopping it. Yeah, it's fair. 
Do you want to, Joelle, walk us through what it was like uh, living on crypto back in 2016 and just, and really just like how the whole thing has gone the past like seven years of living on crypto? It must have obviously gotten easier over time, but the whole thing is, it, it must just be like an insane story if you can run us through it. Yeah, I guess insane is kind of the, the key word there, if I may describe myself. But uh, basically, I heard about this stuff. I was talking about it sometime in 2012, sometime 2013, when I moved up to New Hampshire for the Free State Project. Um, a friend I stopped by in Chicago to see, we shared a pizza and he paid me for his part of it in Bitcoin. That was the first crypto I got. And then I got to New Hampshire and because of the free state movement, there's quite a few people that were using this stuff. And it was just something that I started using in 2013 and kind of regularly used on and off, uh, not exclusively, but you know, whenever I could, I got excited to use it in 2013, 2014. Around about 2015, I realized I was t telling too many people about it. I, I was advocating for it too much. It just more than I was comfortable with. And so I thought, well, if I talk about this is the new money, you're not going to need dollars anymore. If, I, if I'm talking about that stuff, I better live it. And so I just decided, you know what, at the end of, you know, somewhere was that November, December, 2015, I just decided I'm not going to earn government currency anymore. And so I just, you know, quit my job and I was like, all right, now, now I'll figure out what to do. I didn't have a plan before that, by the way, I didn't, I didn't say, well, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to, I have something lined. I didn't have anything lined up. So I, I cold emailed or cold called um, Cointelegraph, which is one of the the big crypto publications and was at the time as well. And just said, hey, you looking for writers? Do you pay in Bitcoin? And they were like, yes and yes. And so then that's just kind of how it started. And of course, in the beginning, that was probably the scary part in the beginning was uh, where I was just, I will only be paid in decentralized money. And they just, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure for that at the time. There was all, it was really rare. And so at that point it was a little, it was very scary and risky. But once I got in, I was like, okay, I can make this work and spent it here and there. Did it, did something here, got, you know, a friend to, oh, will you pay for this for me if I pay you this, all that kind of stuff. And then mostly just when, you know, rent was getting close to due, I would just uh, sell it for cash in my bank account in 20, you know, up until, you know, up through the first half of 2016. Now, and then at some point, um, there was a giant overdraft in the bank account for some re weird reason. And someone had like forged a check or something and tried to clean out my account. I had to spend like a whole week trying to get that reversed and finally did. But then they said, um, and it was also comical at, someone just literally scribbled something on a piece of paper that looked nothing like my signature or anything or even my name. And they're just like, sounds good. We'll give them all this guy's money. Just mind blowing how, how poorly the banking system works. So I did get it all back, but then they said they're going to close the account and we have to reopen you a new one for security reasons. I just said, nah, just hold off on the reopen part. And I just never went and reopened it. And from there it was just, okay, well, Let's see what else I can pay with this stuff. And it, I would not have been able to start that early if I didn't live someplace like New Hampshire with a group like the Free State Project. And it's not until the last several years that it's gotten to something where I could actually just tell people. In fact, I do. I have this uh, 
video called how to live on crypto that's updated for for this year where i just show people some tools i can use to kind of do that but i i wouldn't have been able to do that until very recently to where i could just say hey anyone kind of do it um back in the day it was just you know you got you really got to scrounge around and get a lot of individual things like you know beg your landlord or find someone who really wants to buy crypto privately and so you're just like well why don't you pay your pay my rent for me and I'm going to just pay you in crypto instead. And then there you go. There was a lot of that kind of stuff. And now you can not form any of those relationships if you want and just, just use established services and live on crypto. And it's including as of like of six or so months, I guess, uh, like pay your mortgage and stuff, which is pretty cool. So yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely very different than it used to be. And uh, I think listening to some of your other interviews that you've changed like your your crypto stack over time, certainly the software stack as well, with like bill pay stuff coming online. But the cryptos that you're using, I think you said you're originally doing more Bitcoin, and then you started doing more Dash because it was easier for day to day transactions. What are, what are the best ones for the, the day to day transactions these days? Yeah, so that is correct. I did start with Bitcoin because I was almost the entire market back in 2014, 15, 16, like right around then. Uh, but then at some point, uh, this gets a little bit into crypto politics. <laughs> if there's some people listening on who know kind of it, that story, but it, it's also at some point, um, Bitcoin's block size, which is its base capacity, just like how many transactions it can process on the, the Bitcoin chain never got increased and when a lot of people get on got on there it's like well you got only one train that comes every 10 minutes that can hold a certain amount of people and then when it's gone it's like too many people wanted when you use it sorry you just got to wait for the next train and without increasing the number of trains or the number of tracks or whatever so it basically got slow super slow and expensive to use use bitcoin more super slow i mean it was already getting to like the 50 cent range per transaction which is a lot more than i was used to but also i'd have to wait a couple of hours for a payment to go through and that caused me to uh that caused me some hardship you know i had to like skip lunch a couple days because the transaction didn't work or then a couple times i was trying to wait for it to go through and then my phone ran out of battery and it died and that sucked (laughs) just like a lot of pain and so I decide I, I can either abandon this experiment and say it was good while it lasted, uh, or I can try to keep on making it work. And I just could not, maybe I'm stubborn, but I just, I it was so soul crushing. The thought of just like going back to that old way, like once you taste freedom, just going back to that old thing and like showing people your ID and being like, can I please store my money with you guys and all that stuff. I just couldn't go back. So I looked at the only other option I could use, which at the time was dash and that still today, which was it six, uh, six and a half, seven years later, is still what I use for most of my payments. That was the one thing that worked. And um, since then, I mean, then they're like Bitcoin Cash is another one that works for a lot of things. Not nearly as well in the US, but if you're in some places like St. Kitts or parts of Australia, it could work better maybe. Um, Bitcoin took a long break. And now if you use Lightning Network wallets and stuff, which the experience is nowhere near as good as it used to be when I was living on Bitcoin, but you still can do that again uh, today. And so, yeah, the fact that 
before is like you can only live on Bitcoin and even then it's really, really tough. And then it's like, well, you can live on like one crypto. Now I could probably half dozen different coins. I could probably use almost exclusively that, especially if you mix and match them. So things and this are was a like, lot better. You weren't even going to like Bitcoin ATMs to withdraw cash. It was like purely digital transactions. Yeah, it depends on where and when. Uh, in my bubble, I didn't really do any of that stuff. Uh, occasionally, people would want to get some crypto, and I, you know, it just was a, a choice of like, well, I could only use per use these businesses where I can either spend it directly, or I can do a, or I can like buy a digital gift card with it right away and just do it there. And then sometimes people would be like, hey, I want to buy some. So I'd sell them some. And I'm like, ooh, rare treat. I get to go. I get a little bit of cash. I'm going to pretty much instantly spend it now on someplace I don't usually go to. But definitely with travel, um, which I haven't traveled a whole lot internationally since then, because obviously, you know, COVID hit and then mm. I just was hunkered down for a while. And I just since then got really busy. But right. Um, it definitely all the, when all the traveling. Is, is qu- so is there like a, a sky scanner or Google flights where you just buy the flights in crypto? Yeah. So my favorite site for that is something called Travala. It's like travel with A-L-A, Travala. And Travala takes crypto for everything. And so you can book your flights. Your yeah, that's like a traditional like non-crypto company, right? I almost remember Actually that. not. So Cheap is Air is... Cheap Air is a traditional one. Travala. There's a few others, but Travala, I know because they have a they have a crypto token that you can use to get discounts and stuff. So yeah, they're definitely crypto. kind of crypto native, but they're native. Fan, okay. they're a fantastic company to take them all kinds of cryptos. Um, Alternative Airlines is another good one, but I haven't really used them much. And of course, you can buy like Hotels.com gift cards, American Airlines gift cards, things like that easily through other services like BitRefill, for example. So you can buy all the stuff to travel and accommodate. And then depending on the country you're going to, they, they might have some gift card things there. But then you can also, um, um, there was this fantastic, uh, you know, another another shout, another unsolicited shout out, but there's an, an ATM company that operates a lot in Europe called Shitcoins Club, which is a funny, a fantastic name. But they have ATMs all over the place. So when I went to a conference in Madrid at the end of 2019, obviously I paid for my airfare accommodation, everything in crypto. Mm-hmm. And then I just showed up in Madrid with um, just like a, with basically, you know, no bank card, no nothing. And quickly found my way to one of these ATMs, sold some crypto for euros that just covered the journey for like spending cash around there. So definitely... Uh, dirty fiat paper becomes much more of a thing <laughs> when traveling to what I call the dark zones, like the unfamiliar territory, you know, kind of like you, you take a, you take an animal outside of their, their basic territory and they get very cagey. It's kind of the same thing with me, I guess. I'm very familiar with the territory around me and where I can and can't spend. It just, it's a lot less developed, but again, thanks to these tools I've been mentioning, it's a lot easier to do all kinds of different spending. In fact, there is at least one company I know of that's starting to that's soon, hopefully, can, unless this whole banking crisis ends up turning things even more upside down. Uh, they'll be offering um, instant prepaid crypto debit cards 
that you can buy in the exact amount that you need at the moment with no, without giving up your identity or anything, just privately. And that also work outside of the US. So in that case, that would be fun. You just like, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, let's just say I'm going to go to Portugal and you land in Portugal and then you buy like a prepaid little card, put it in your Apple Pay or whatever. And then you just spend it around. Maybe you only buy like $50 or 50 euros worth. And then that's spent, you throw it away and get a new one with your crypto right there and just keep going like that. And mm-hmm. that that would really open up a whole lot of things for people who are not nearly as adventurous as I was. Right, traditional debit card. So what's like what's like your stack? Like you go to the grocery store and they accept Dash. Uh, you do some, I, I think I saw some sort of like utility bill, crypto thing. Could you just walk us through like the, you know, like the normal five or 10 things that you have to buy, like groceries and, and whatnot? Yeah, so uh, the the bill pay thing has shifted a whole lot over the years. That's been the heart of the, the most recently kind of fixed in the US, of course. In Europe, there's a lot of crypto bill pay services, so it's not nearly as annoying. But um, there's this company that I really like called Spritz Finance that lets you pay all your bills, including mortgage and stuff with crypto. And so if you just use them, you just like knock out all your bills and then groceries. So there's a few local farmers markets and people like farms and people like that, that I know that I have bought, um, that do take crypto directly. And so there's that, that covers a lot of things like that. And if you want to go to the grocery store, um, first off, you can easily enough get a Walmart gift card uh, with crypto and also for Whole Foods. So both ends of that spectrum. And so you can kind of go in. The good thing about the Walmart one as well is you can put it into the Walmart app and then you use the Walmart pay function and just scan a QR code at the at the register when you leave. And there you go. So you can just like, for example, you know, say buy $58 worth of stuff. You just buy a $58 gift card on your way to the self-checkout put it in your Walmart pay app and then you just scan the QR code on your way out or you can, you know, add more. It also works at the gas pumps that they have there, which is another fun thing. Um, Whole Foods, you can same thing. You just like barcode scan on your phone and then you pay for it like right there and you can buy an amount, uh, appropriate amount to exactly what you're buying and it, it goes through fast enough um, that you can do that like right at the point of sale. You don't have to be doing a whole lot of math ahead of time. You don't really hold up the whole line. So that's groceries. Um, gas, I already mentioned that there's like the Walmart thing works. Um, there's oh, also shoes. Well, shoes. Yeah. So the gift card solution works really well for like a lot of um, um, like there's a lot of outlets not too far from me. A lot of the major brands, again, the same thing, instant gift card. They bring you up. This is how much it's going to be. You buy it right there. There's a couple, a few different apps that actually do that for you. Sometimes you get discounts like up to like eight or 10% doing that, which is really nice. And so, yeah, that works for shoes, clothes, things like that. Get it. Okay. What about Amazon? Yeah. Amazon, there's a few things that work. You can use a company like BitRefill that sells Amazon credit, which is just the easiest way. You just go to the checkout and instead of putting in a card, you just open up a new tab, buy the Amazon gift code, plug it in. Uh, but for if you're willing to wait a little bit more, there's a, a site called Purse, which lets you uh, get a lot more 
discounts than that on Amazon. And it works by you put in some crypto, someone who wants the crypto will buy your order for you. And then crypto gets released from escrow to them. And so that's a little bit more because you have to, you have to uh, get a wish list, an Amazon wish list and put it in there and then wait for someone to, to pick it up. And so take, it's a little bit less certain as far as timing, but it, you can get like 15, 20% off like an Amazon order, which is not bad at all. So yeah, that's Amazon. Uh, there's this one service where I, I like, um, it's out of Germany, but it does work in the US as well, called Shop in Bit. And they have a concierge service where you can basically just say, I want these items and they'll just buy them for you and send them to you. And then you pay crypto and that's it. So you get all kinds of weird stuff that way. Okay. Okay. Instead of continuing to, to run down the list, I'd love to know just at like a, at a high level, it's probably been a fair bit of a um, like mental load or uh, yeah, like a mental load to have to figure out how to do this every week. Things change, blah, blah, blah. I need to get the gift card. Do you think that it's been overall worth it the past five, six, seven years to do this for the learning experience? You probably got to learn a lot about um, about crypto in general. Like, what, what, Has it been worth the hassle? I definitely think so. And I, I have to qualify it by saying I don't know if it's worth the hassle for everyone, right? Just being super honest, there's a lot of difficult things in this. I do think it is worth it for everyone or almost everyone today, but over the course of when this has taken place, it's not always been worth it for the average person. I think it's been great because first of all, I was in a position where I had enough lifetime flexibility that it wasn't going to be too much of a hardship. I could figure it out. Um, in addition to that, I learned a whole lot not just about, about, obviously about crypto, which is kind of what I do now. I'm like, I work full-time in the crypto industry. And a big part of that is based on my expertise on knowing how to live on crypto and knowing what services work and what don't. Educating people, doing consulting about that, um, doing marketing campaigns, onboarding new services to use crypto or use a specific crypto that I know are useful and all that kind of stuff. So I built a career out of this, so that's great. Um, and also just, I've learned a ton about how the world works. Like I learned, I know a lot about like the payments industry and like what are the, the pain points in the everyday merchant kind of faces. I know a lot about money, of course, but also about like decentralized tech, uh, a lot about the old financial system when as someone who doesn't use it really, you learn about all the idiosyncrasies and the craziness of it. Like for example, when you swipe your card at a merchant, not only how much they get charged, but that they don't get that money for days later. They can't pay their pay their employees with it for days. And you could just say, man, I don't want to pay it. And then there's a chargeback and they lose it. Like I had no idea it was that bad before I kind of learned about this stuff. And yeah, it just teaches about almost every aspect of life because this is also a like i guess cryptocurrency is really the sort of um where it starts but crypto as a whole is now so much more than that you got um obviously with crypto you learn about you know digital money 
or you learn about how money works. With DeFi, you learn about how the whole finance system works. And then, of course, incentives and things. And then NFTs are a whole new thing where now you're like, okay, how do property rights work? How do digital property rights work? How do, you know, licensing and like that kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of things you kind of learn about the world. And it's kind of a, it's an unforgettable kind of experience of education where you can't really go back. That's the big thing. I just know too much to go back to living in fiat again. <laughs> what do you mean you know too much? Yeah, like I know, well, here's the thing. Everyone kind of just deals with fiat and like fiat currency in a bank account and they don't really think about it. Maybe they hear something, but it is actually kind of insane because um, the a scarce store of value such as gold is the entire reason we have money to get today. Those pieces of paper are supposed to be representatives of that. And at some point they, they didn't make it new money. They just took away, they just rug pulled everyone just took away the value and at any time they can just make infinite more of those it just steal your money out from under you not only that but you can't get very far in life for most people without a bank account so now you have to not only hold on to this fake paper money that you're required by law to use that they could just inflate at any point but now you have to give it to someone else give all your money other than whatever you have in your wallet give it all to someone else to hold on to and just trust that they're not going to go bankrupt or you know, lose it or whatever. Not only that, but the institution you give it to doesn't have your money. Fractional reserve banks don't have anyone's money, almost anyone's money at any time. And if just too many people want their money back in a short period of time, all of a sudden the whole thing crumbles and everyone loses everything. And that you need to participate in this insane system to be part of modern society. I mean, that is absolutely insane. I don't understand how mm-hmm. we're putting up with this. And once you know this, you know, they call it the red pill, all this kind of, you know, trite kind of things. But literally, once you know this, how can you be like, yeah, I'm going to spend all those hard hours away from my family, grinding away, full of stress, doing this and that, you know just to store up some value in this, this whole sham of a system that the rich and powerful are just using to exploit us. Like I can't do that. Like I would never be able to hold down a job if I knew that's how I was going to do things. Yeah. Yeah. Fractional reserve is definitely, definitely crazy. So you, yeah. you said you started out as a, as a gold bug. Do you still keep some percentage of your assets in, in gold or precious metals or, other hard assets um here and there i i think they're important um i'm kind of a. it's kind of a temporary hedge i would say um because obviously gold is the root of money at some point or not all money but you know what i'm saying at some point people started using precious metals especially gold as money at some point Gold had the limitation that in order to transact with it, um, you needed to trust an institution with paper uh, represent certificates that represent ownership in this thing. At some right. point, you had to like let go of the actual gold because you can't just carry pockets full of doubloons everywhere, right? So at that point, that was a critical failure in the technology of gold and precious metals where you, in order to advance to the next level of society, you needed to trust a third party. 
And then when you trusted the third party, that just ended up making, you know, fractional reserve banking that ended up making fiat currency that's not backed by anything and stuff. And so a return to that is good, but I don't think that, and I think that gold and silver and precious metals will always have some sort of a role in humanity, whether it's purely industrial and decorative or whether it's actually used as a reserve asset backing certain digital assets, um, especially if you want to sort of like bootstrap a, a new crypto that doesn't have all this history. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm not super interested because it, I think it had its time. I think it did great. And I just think it it doesn't work anymore to that degree. It's kind of like, you know, I still drive a stick shift, right? At some point, I do realize I'm going to have to give that up. At some point, they're just not going to be the way you you drive the best vehicles in the world anymore. So I'm kind of at that point with precious metals as well. Mm-hmm. I know uh, in New Hampshire over the years, they... They tried to do a couple things, right? You, you definitely know more about this uh, than I do, but you know what I'm talking about? Like there were some guys that tried to mint their own gold or mint their own coins and uh, like uh, introduce their own paper currencies and stuff. And they ha- even had like the FBI come and like shut them down. There was a couple different instances like this during the 2010s, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I can't remember. It's hard to keep track of all of them because there have been a million different um, attempts at this. But I do know that in recent years, whether it's 2017 or 19, I don't remember which year it started, but there's something called a gold back, which is a little, uh, it's it's a paper, I don't know if it's paper, but it's a little glossy bill that looks like fiat currency. But it's uh, not only it, does it represent gold, it has a certain amount of gold in the actual note. And mm-hmm. it's used, it's actually kind of making a comeback. Um, it's kind of making a little bit of a comeback as a as something that you you kind of see a lot of people getting tipped in these days. You know, it's it's an easy thing to just tip the wait staff with or whatever, and you go out to eat and stuff because you don't have to get them to download a wallet and scan this QR code and all that nonsense. So, yeah, it's it's kind of getting a little bit of resurgence in the liberty circles. I do know people will exchange them. Um, and they're growing quite rapidly. I I don't think it's going to be real competition for crypto, to be honest. But I I do think that you'll find a lot of locals, local freedom people around here with gold backs in their wallet in case they they lose their phone or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of stories. I I, I should uh I'm kind of googling it now. The the free keen guys got arrested by the FBI and the IRS in 2021, six people in Keene um, for operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. Uh, I think including the the Free Talk Live radio host, Ian Freeman. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting situation. I'm not going to comment too much on that whole thing, but basically... Um, Ian and his fellows are freedom maximalists. They're extremely, you know, pro freedom. And basically they were, you know, trying to have as free of a business and service as they absolutely could. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of within, I guess, within confines of the law, but apparently the law didn't like their definitions of whether they were in confines with, because they, they had a few uh, religious organizations. They funneled stuff through and, I mean, 
legal, I guess. But the thing is, um, that's the thing that's really messed up about the government, right? Is they, they get to decide what's legal and what isn't. And so even if you're <laughs> technically, you know, the way you, you technically do things that, that, you know, fulfill paperwork needs, they could say, well, you're actually operating an illegal money laundering business and you're therefore this is no good, even though, you know, so that's the thing. I, I think that they absolutely didn't know, didn't hurt anyone, did nothing wrong. Um, and there might be a legal case that they did nothing legally wrong either. I also mm-hmm. probably think that, you know, at, at that point when you're messing around with, you know, that kind of stuff with, especially the transmission between dollars and crypto. It's generally a good idea if your first priority is survival and longevity in this, right? It's generally a good idea to mm-hmm. be above and beyond what you supposedly need to be. But at the same time, I know that that wasn't, I'm yeah. guessing that that wasn't their top priority. The top priority was uh, an activism kind of thing. Let's be as mm-hmm. free as possible and send a free message as possible and maybe even go down as a martyr. I don't know. <laughs> I, and that's not even the one I was really remembering. I swear there were some earlier ones where they were like printing coins or melting nickel, or I, I, I really totally forget. Um, but there's, there's definitely been a history in New Hampshire of um, kind of testing the limits over the decades, which, which is cool, right? It's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a question for you, Joel, which is like, you mentioned how that you were uh, you started out as a gold bug before you got into crypto, and even you moved to New Hampshire before even really getting into crypto. And I'm wondering, like, you probably grew up on like Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard and and uh, Milton Friedman and stuff like that. Uh, I'm just guessing. You you could tell me maybe who are your earlier earlier influences, and then as you've moved in a more crypto and technological direction. Um, have you sort of maintained uh, a lot of those same Milton Friedman-esque principles or have you sort of shifted your your paradigm a bit? Yeah, so that is correct. I did end up uh, getting, I guess, rich in especially the Austrian economic school and all those ideals because when you're looking for answers of in the history of money, like what happened when, where did the gold go? There's only one group of people who's talking about that. Now, uh, I still, you know, hold obviously all those people as, you know, heroes in a certain way, as a big fan of, um, Erwin Schiff, who unfortunately died in prison for, you know, not paying what the government said he owed in taxes. And that's, you know, it's a very cautionary tale. And I kind of want to keep that always in my mind. And of course, always a fan of his son, Peter Schiff, who, you know, King Goldbug or whatever, and I actually did some work for him way back in the day. But that was kind of my my goal when I was to try to use, um, he, he was doing a gold debit card or something, gold back debit card. And I was like trying to really get one of those because I wanted to have all my savings and sound money and spend it in the real world. You know, I haven't changed that much over the last decade or so, you know? So that was kind of a thing. And now he's kind of a crypto antagonist and everyone gives him a hard time for it. Like, yeah, yeah. But like, I see a lot of his points too. I mean, I don't agree with him, but I see a lot of the points as well. 
because there is a lot of weird and scammy nonsense in the crypto world too that needs to be called out. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my kind of heroes, the thing about heroes is um, I feel like a lot of people, you know, that, that whole like, don't meet, like don't meet your heroes kind of thing. Um, I feel like a lot of people wait for there to be these, these big people in the books that are just like, Oh, this is an important person to pay attention to. And my kind of, first off, I'm trying to be my own hero the best I can, because I want to, I want to live a life that I'd be proud of. But also I like people who in the modern day are doing these kinds of things that I really kind of admire and not just like old school heroes. So I mean, obviously on the larger scale, um, I think Edward Snowden is a massive hero. I think that um, Julian Assange is another massive hero. Um, Ross Ulbricht gets up there too. And unfortunately he, you know, ended up paying a big price for that. I mean, he, he's still, still around, but I mean, he's probably never, he's probably, (laughs) well, he, he's probably never going to see the outside of a prison cell ever again, but he created the, the Silk Road and like basically the radical peer to peer crypto field marketplace. And so he's definitely big on the list there. Um, I also look more kind of modern. So Toshi Nakamoto is always on there somewhere and whoever that person ended up actually being. Um, and there's a few other people in modern times. I mean, obviously Roger Ver, Bitcoin Jesus, the guy to kind of really put the gas on the, on this whole train, right? The kind of you person. So, that really, right? He was really the guy in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's literally the first angel investor in crypto businesses and startups. And like mm-hmm. the crypto ecosystem that wasn't just, oh, I like this little coin. Let me send it to my friends. Like that became anything real is all thanks to that guy. To him just really keeping it going and being a relentless advocate. There's a reason why they called him Bitcoin Jesus. It wasn't just Bitcoin, Bitcoin gold bags guy, kind of guy, Bitcoin money bags. It was, you know, they kind of give that title because of that. Um, Eric Voorhees is another one I really like who actually used to be a free stater. Um, he founded Shapeshift, which was a crypto to crypto exchange system. And then he ended up getting uh, the government regulated and made him do identity requirements. And then he ended up destroying his company and creating a fully decentralized autonomous organization now. And yeah, it's definitely someone who sta- stands out. And then there's a few names that probably no one would ever know, but like low, but just people that I know who are you know, personal friends of mine who are working really hard at, at doing this whole thing. Um, obviously I would say, um, Jason Sorens, the creator of the free state project idea is up on the list as well because, because of that. And yeah, the thing is, it's just hard to, it's hard to have like straight up heroes because at some point I think we all should be striving to be them. And at some point we should be striving to surpass them to do better, to do maybe not better on the whole, but like to keep moving past it, just be the next person, next figure in this never ending struggle for human freedom that we're on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so you, do you find yourself going to a lot of conferences and meeting people in in person and talking about these ideas? Not as much as I'd like to over the years. I've been to a few, I always make the, the local New Hampshire conferences, of course, the 
Porc- the Porcupine Freedom Festival in June, and then Liberty Forum, which is always um, early March. And I always make those. I have traveled to a few different conferences. Um, it is kind of funny how there's always a little bit of like, I would say shock, but there's a little bit of difference when you run into um, these different conferences and conference goers because of kind of where I am right now with what I'm trying to accomplish, what I, how I live my life compared to everyone else. The, the crypto world is very much into either pure investment type things or like toxic Bitcoin maximalism or like all the, the, the NFT world and just like the, the ooh, new shiny thing kind of stuff. The actual like first principles, decentralized money, let's actually live on this stuff is just almost nowhere. And sometimes when I go there, you get a few people get like really energized by that. They're like, oh, that's awesome. Like they're starved for it. And then you also get a lot of people that just really don't care. And it just, it's a little bit of a shock there. Then the same thing goes for if you go to say like a a Liberty type conference, Um, you have a lot of people that are just talking about the same old thing Mm. about like the national. You ever go to to Anarcapulco in in Mexico? I have not specifically been, but a whole lot of friends of mine have been. Um, Maybe I will end up going at one point. It just always Mm. seemed to kind of elude me. I almost went one year, but then. You know, I, I had another conflicting conference and then that, that kind of got in the way. Fair enough. Um, one or two uh, things that I definitely wanted to ask you, even if they're out of order. Um, Roger Ver, uh, big on Bitcoin Cash. Some people are like haters on Bitcoin Cash. Uh, some people think it's great. I've seen it like work very well in terms of like instant, you know, just like instant transactions, fulfilling the use case. What are your thoughts on, on Bitcoin Cash? Yeah, so my first general, like the overall sentiment is very positive, right? I think it's great. Um, I get that out of the way first because it might sound like I'm saying some negative things. Bitcoin Cash came, ex- came into existence a whole year after I'd already stopped using Bitcoin for day-to-day transactions. And that was kind of the entire like selling point is, oh, this is Bitcoin if it still worked. But I was already using Dash, and then obviously there's others like Monero and Zcash and stuff that I've been since using. But so I think it's great. It just it never had a super strong place in my personal life because I was already doing this, and um, by the time the network effects kind of caught up to some of the other things I've been using, it's just like yeah, there's no real incentive to switch. Um, I still I still have it. I still use it. I still have a lot of kinship with people in that community because I think they're really focused on it. Um, It's definitely, it's kind of funny how you get this like weird holy war thing between Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. And there, there isn't that much difference. I mean, there's, there's some fundamental technological differences. It's a lot of like an opinion kind of thing, like saying, no, I want to, I want to do things this way. No, I prefer the other way. It's just like, um, flash frying versus slow cooking your meat. I don't know. It's just, it's something that's like, who cares as long as we all eat it? It seems to be kind of inconsequential. Um, so I think that it's a tool that we're just like anything. It's a tool that works and around New Hampshire, you can use it, you know, pretty much everywhere you can use any other crypto. Uh, mm. if you go to some parts like parts of Australia and, 
sync kits and stuff. It's very prevalent in those areas. So I'd have to lean heavily on it there. Other areas completely just non-existent. Um, but I think it's a, I think the philosophy, the core philosophy is great, which is Bitcoin's original design worked pretty well. Let's continue to build on that and improve on it. And just making the, the, making it work for everyone is kind of the way to go. And of course the, the way Bitcoin's interesting in the way it evolved because you had a lot of people with very, I guess, technical opinions on like, well, if it scales this way, if people use it that way, bad things will happen. And I do feel like um, to a, a certain extent, it ends up being, um, I guess, Bitcoin basically lost a and the crypto world as a consequence, right? Lost a ton of momentum because Bitcoin did not increase its block size specifically. Uh, okay. And when you got people who are using it for everyday transactions and then all of a sudden it costs several dollars to transact, you got to wait all day and you just, all that stuff, those lost years from 2016 to, I would say like 2022 even, those lost years of basically the best decentralized money in the world no one can use. And then you got to be like, well, I'm going to use do focus on smart contracts in the meantime on Ethereum because I can't use this as money. Or I'm going to just, you know, use a different coin, but which one we're all fighting over it. And like all that lost momentum, we'd all be living on crypto by now if that didn't happen. And so right now you can use Bitcoin again, thanks to the Lightning Network. There's obviously some trade-offs and there's obviously some particulars but the big thing I'm just mad about is like, it wasn't really worth it. Like where we're at today, because you wanted to do things a specific way. It just, so I think Bitcoin cash was the right idea all along. And, um, trend, uh, cryptocurrencies that have a very similar model with it's, you know, Bitcoin cash dash, obviously, uh, and then Monero and Zcash are also similar in their own ways with some extra kind of privacy focuses. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And then I would kind of throw in Litecoin too, even though Litecoin kind of has a Bitcoin-like philosophy, just the mm -hmm. way it's structured. It has a, It's faster and cheaper to use without any stuff like the Lightning Network. Add all that together. I mean, maybe even if you're really reaching, you can get in, throw in Bitcoin SV and Nano and stuff. But uh, all that is just what this is all about. Obviously, I am starting to find a lot more value behind stuff that does like, DeFi and nfts and stuff like all that other stuff however the core of this is just this is digital money that no one can stop you from using that everyone in the world can use without permission and that's a beautiful thing and that we're almost 15 years into crypto and we we're still not all doing this it's a little sad so that's why i am and i'm calling on anyone else who wants to you know give it a try what about Dash versus Bitcoin Cash? You said you started with Dash. I guess, was it the earlier fork then? Well, yeah. So Bitcoin Cash was a chain split, meaning all the same transactions and balances just got transferred over. It just, it's like a, like a, it's kind of like breaking up a political party or a church congregation or something. And now you form a splinter group. 
Whereas mm-hmm. with Dash, it was a completely from the ground up project that just happened to use a, a variant on the Bitcoin code base to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they're, they're extremely similar in the what the end user experience is kind of like, which is, you know, it's solid, it's fast and cheap, it's secure, et cetera. But um, I think that Dash, Bitcoin Cash is starting to do some interesting stuff now. I think it ha- it just has so many more years of, first of all, grappling with an identity crisis of like, well, who are we? We're the real Bitcoin, but then you're defined by the old Bitcoin. So, and then a good chunk of the community leaves when Bitcoin SV forks off. And then another good chunk of the community leaves when uh, Bitcoin ABC, which is now known as eCash, forks off. And the guy who runs eCash, the guy who forked off, he's the guy who created Bitcoin Cash, basically. So then you have the identity crisis and figuring out, and now you're like, okay, this is what we want to do moving forward in the ecosystem. And I feel like you're just now getting around to that, whereas uh, Dash has existed since 2014 and has had a long history of being able to to build the next steps on the, the base awesome product of what Bitcoin was. This has a lot more time to kind of do that. Um, I think it's great to use both tools. For me, uh, most of the services that I use and I rely on um, don't accept Bitcoin Cash. They only accept Dash and you know some others. But so for me personally, there's a few things I can use Bitcoin Cash for, but I can use everything with Dash right now. And so for me personally, I don't really have a, an incentive to change that, but if I do visit St. Kitts or parts of Australia, for example, I'm definitely going to load up on that. Um, there's some wallet also called Zapit that lets you basically pay anywhere. I'll basically use Bitcoin Cash only to shop just about anywhere in India right now. So if I go to India, I'm definitely going to load up on Bitcoin Cash, for example. But yeah, so that's kind of the the thing. I I kind of think we're at the, the area of... First off, we can peacefully coexist between different projects, but also, even if we can't, I think we need to, as the end user, just keep a bunch of different keys on that on that key ring there. Just start you just keep a bunch of different tools, use the best one side by side, and let them have very friendly competition until they start to just merge into fewer and fewer. Until now, we have just like a couple main chains that people use. But I don't think you get that way by sticking in your siloed community. I think you only get that way by dipping into all the different communities and just letting, I guess, the free market dictate what you actually use. Right. Do you have like a policy where you only invest in things you use? And you must have some insights in that sense because you're such an active user. Yeah, well, I don't necessarily um, invest I don't, I'm a terrible investor probably also. <laughs> um, I, what I do is I'm a pure, I guess, user. And so whatever people will pay me in, um, I will use. So, well, here's the thing. If people pay me, let's just say I only got paid in Bitcoin, for example, I would use a lot of that. I would also probably swap some over into Dash because it's easier to use in more reliable for like a lot of everyday purchase kind of things, but it would, I'd probably keep most of it in Bitcoin that way. It's whatever I earn. I tend to keep it in. And then if I need something specific, I swap it over into something else. And so even the more investy type stuff, 
it's all, I guess, like utilitarian, like, oh, I can do this with that. I can, you know, I need some polygon to mint my NFTs. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm, I need to uh, swap tokens between them on ThorChain. So I'm going to help provide liquidity on the ThorChain protocol and the Maya protocol to, to help facilitate me swapping between tokens that I need. And then just that's kind of how it, it shakes out. Um, I really think that um, I'm sure I think that the best way to invest and I'm not, again, I'm not an investor at all and I'm definitely not an investment advisor. So, but I think that one of the best things to do is to get like real world data on this kind of stuff. And the only way to do it is by using it. So there, there's a lot of like hype around a lot of different projects. And if I actually use them, I know what actually works. It's something that's like a, you've got to start at the beginning and the end and then kind of see what's in the middle. So the, the end is what works today. And the beginning, I guess, would be when you research the fundamentals. And so, for example, um, just throw out Polygon there again. Polygon is the, the premier, I guess, Ethereum layer two solution. Uh, it's where most of this, the smart contract action is today, it seems like, as of the recording of this podcast, at least. Uh, obviously, there's a lot there's more on the main Ethereum chain, but it's super expensive, so no one does that. So tons of NFTs. Trump sold all his NFTs on Polygon, so I guess if that's an indicator. Uh, so clearly, it's the best in class on that particular use case. But then at the same time, if you look at the fundamentals, it's kind of controlled by a very small group of people. It's not really super decentralized or secure in that way. And those like fundamentals. So I still use it, but I use it as a tool. I don't hang out in it a lot. And then on the other hand, you might take something like um, one of my favorites these days is Zcash because it has kind of the, it's very thoughtfully produced. It has a absolutely best in class privacy that now you're starting to see a whole bunch of other projects kind of adopt and basically super sound on all those fundamentals. On the other hand, today it's a little of a hassle to use. And so it's, it's like, well, what if they never clear that hump? Is it going to be that valuable in the future? I don't know. So ideally you'd want to kind of have both, right? You have something where you understand the base technology, you understand the fundamental economic design, Oh, this seems like it's going to work out long term. And then you see if that translates to actual results in the real world today. And when those two things kind of line up, I think you kind of have something that's good. But cryptos so far has been a big speculative kind of industry. And that kind of fundamental based analysis hasn't really panned out super well as far as like short term gains. But eventually. Hmm. And so I hate to ask you, uh, you know, what you're bullish on, blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm sure some people listening to this, they're probably waiting for that nugget. So maybe we'll kind of uh, end things off with that. Like mm-hmm. what um, what chains or what coins do you are you most excited about, whether that be from an intellectual perspective or usability perspective or maybe the, the community is really cool. Uh, what what things should people look more into? Yeah, well, let me say conceptually first and then name names after that. So conceptually, um, 
other than conceptually the big kind of dark horse that I, oh, I don't know if it's a dark horse, but the, the new hotness that I don't think enough people are paying attention to is um, cross chain automated market maker DeFi protocols or, and so for people who are vaguely familiar with crypto cross natively cross chain Uniswap type things. And basically things that let you swap one asset for another asset without having to bridge to put like a wrapper around it um, to do it first, where you, you literally throw Litecoin in and you get Dash out, just like that simple. And you can actually earn interest on that, like that, all the whole decentralized finance thing that's not that the deals in native tokens, not in like, well, if you're an Ethereum, you can only use all the Ethereum tokens. And then you can only earn on those and stuff like that. And you got these solid ecosystems. None of that, the cross-chain stuff. That's something that I think is going to be, it's already kind of huge, but it's still like so going under the radar these days. And um, so the name names part, um, on that subject, um, I think that ThorChain, Thor is in God of Thunder, mm-hmm. and the Maya protocol, which is, it just launched, I believe, this week which is a, a fork of ThorChain, a friendly fork of ThorChain, are both cross-chain AMMs. And so basically, they, they're they a machine by which you can deposit Bitcoin and earn, without trusting a custodian, earn Bitcoin on that Bitcoin and then withdraw it in an automated, decentralized way. You can also swap any asset for any asset. And there are these, these um, aggregators they can aggregate across these different protocols and anything else. So then you can, with one click, swap, let's say, an Avalanche token for a Binance Smart Chain token. And just goes in one motion. You can kind of do the whole thing. That kind of stuff where now all of a sudden you don't need an exchange anymore. You can just get a DeFi front end that has a little fiat on-ramp to it. And then that that's something I'm super excited about. Um, the other thing is um, zero knowledge proof based privacy, which obviously Zcash is kind of the the granddaddy of all of this. So um, Zcash has some usability issues it needs to work out first, but I'm really excited on that. But also projects such as Railgun, which is a, a smart contract that uses that, that basically lets you have super, like Zcash level, super high level privacy on any Ethereum or Polygon or whatever transaction trade nft purchase whatever as i joke about you can buy trump nft and no one knows you did it so that stuff is really cool and i guess finally um decentralized digital identity systems are something that i think is going to be huge a lot of people you know where you have the centralized ones where you have you know cbdc's tracking your identity your every purchase all that kind of stuff that's the bad side of things the good side of things is what if instead of those long cryptographic ugly addresses you had a um, a username and what if you could actually friend people on the blockchain and if you lose your wallet and you have to restore it from nothing it doesn't just bring back your um, your money it brings back your money your identity and your friends and all your interactions with your friends. It's all kind of in this private decentralized system. And you can just sign in to t- a Twitter clone or whatever with your crypto wallet. And you can already kind of do that with like Ethereum, but it's still with that long, ugly address. And you don't have that that social identity kind of element to it. 
And that's something that Dash has been working on for many years. And I really hope <laughs> it gets released soon because otherwise I'm going to be annoyed. But basically, if you see any other project that's also doing that thing, get really excited about that, in my opinion. Nice. Any more? Uh, let's see. What else? Um, I think that's that covers a lot of things. Um, I'm trying to think about where, because obviously you got that the zero knowledge privacy thing, the usability that comes from those decentralized digital identities, and then true cross-chain DeFi, so you're not just swapping some like regular tokens on your thing. Those are the big, I guess, the big three. The next thing I guess I should say, which unfortunately I don't, I can't name names on this because it's still a little bit conceptual, but I really think that the NFT revolution is just beginning. We started with the, with the, the ugly JPEGs that do nothing. But for example, on my, uh, on my YouTube channel, I do live shows and my super chats for those are from a discord that's NFT owners only. So you have to own my NFT and it'll let you into my discord or telegram group. As mm-hmm. soon as you sell that NFT or whatever, you get kicked out. And mm-hmm. so I don't have to sell individual memberships to people. They can just pass around my NFTs. I get royalties on the, the resales all they want. And it just, it's a kind of cool way of like making like token gating stuff. But I really think that once you start seeing um, NFT properties, like NFT titles to real world assets that can evolve. So for example, your um, the title to your house as an NFT, where every single time you get a repair done on it, that gets signed by the smart contract of say the plumber. And then that adds on to the NFT. It says at this date, certifiably this repair was done and this, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can just trade the actual NFT of property online, as opposed to having to go through all that nonsense of real estate, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, or where you have the, the NFT title to your car. So if you lose a key, you can just open your car with your title because it just authenticates, Oh, you're the owner of this thing, that kind of stuff. If you start seeing that crop up in real usable ways, that's something I'd get excited for too. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely coming. Yeah. Sick, man. Wow, there's so many things I'd love to ask you about. You've been super generous with your time, though. We already hit the uh, the two-hour mark. Um, you, dude, you're a legend. Are Do you think you're like the only guy that's been living on crypto uh, since back then? Um, no, it's hard. I think a lot of people that do are kind of more quiet about it than me. Um, (laughs) but I, I wouldn't say quiet, like, like, um, like they're hiding it, but they're just not as loud. I know people who I've not conferred, but I've claimed, uh, Max Hillbrand, who is kind of more in the Bitcoin maximalist type space, but he's a good dude. He says he's been doing it for a while. Um, I know some friends local to me who don't have like birth certificates and stuff. They don't exist legally. So what do they got to do? They got to live on crypto. I know they're doing that's more hardcore than me. Even, um, I know a few people like that doing that. I know some people who actually like watch some of my stuff and are now because of that doing, doing the same thing, except even more, uh, a friend of mine in particular has some animation company and he's pays half his em- over half his employees in Bitcoin. 
he lives unbanked off of Bitcoin now and stuff. And so, yeah, the message is spreading. Um, those are my heroes. They're the people that like decide to keep this, decide to like also do this. Like it's, it's, it's crazy enough that like me and my, my flexible state in my perfect little libertarian utopia, in New Hampshire decided to do something a little bit risky, but then the other people that say, Oh, I'll, I'll do this too with my, you know, my proper like mortgage and family and like kids, anyone with kids who does this is, is insane <laughs> in a good way. So those, those are my heroes. Paying the babysitter. Yeah. I'm, I know some that do. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, next time I'm in the uh, the Boston or Montreal area, I'll definitely have to ring you up, try to make a visit to the, the free state of New Hampshire. We'll go for fried clams. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully you'll be able to, to pay in crypto directly by then. <laughs> exactly. Man, yeah, you, you definitely inspire me. I need to move more in this direction. And um, I'm sure all, all the listeners really appreciated hearing your story. Um I think uh, what you're doing is, is really cool, kind of being at the confluence of a, of a couple different spaces in terms of sovereignty and crypto and all this stuff. And uh, I'm sure we could go for hours about, you know, theories around uh, individual sovereignty and uh, what's happening. We didn't even get into really like the bank runs and the CBDC too much. So um, we'll have to, you know, have you on again another time because there's always uh, new developments. But Joel, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Yeah, likewise. It's been a pleasure. So do you want to take this time to direct the audience to anything that you would would like to promote or highlight? Yeah, so uh, I run a YouTube channel and other things called Digital Cash Network. It's also an audio podcast and stuff. So if you are into crypto, that's a great place to go. There's definitely... Um, there's a bunch of like how to live on crypto videos. In fact, one actually called that or a few called that and definitely check that out because I put that, you know, I make sure to show people all the tips and tricks and stuff. Um, if that's basically where you kind of find me, Twitter is always a great place. Um, and I go by the desert links on Twitter and yeah, just basically follow me there anywhere. Um, I was on CNN a while back talking about living on crypto and stuff. If you want to, See if you can dig that up. That'll, that'll be a little bit of a challenge if you can find that on on the interweb somewhere. But yeah, go go check all that stuff out. But more importantly, uh, anyone who really who got it all like excited about any of this stuff, uh, look up that how to live on crypto video and then just start spending crypto on one thing. Just make a habit out of it. Just start there. And yeah, that's that's your homework, I guess. Yeah, learn by doing. I like it. By the way, one last question. What what's the Desert Links all about? Where does that come from? Um, it kind of was back in the day. Um, everything I've done in life that's okay, I've learned by doing. And I wanted to become like a writer in some way. And so I, I started a blog and I called it the Desert Links because I kind of I wanted to call it I was living in Phoenix, which is, you know, a desert hellhole. <laughs> I was living there at the time and I was like well, what am I going to call? Like, am I, I'm this like desert rat out here doing this stuff. But first off, rat is just not as positive. And also that, that name was already taken. There was already a blog called the desert rat. And so I just decided to like, what else could I be? You know, desert links. Turns out there was a cat breed called desert links. And yeah, I just decided to do that. 
and uh, years and years of doing that, it kind of stuck. And it was also my Twitter handle back when I didn't realize that people had different handles for their professional, like their publication and their personal thing. So then it just ended up being a thing that kind of stuck. And yeah, there you go. It's a lot easier than, than typing out my real name for some people. That's awesome, man. Uh, and again, where can people find you? What's your, your Twitter, Twitter handle and website and everything? The Desert Links on Twitter. Not Desert Linux. That's someone else. Um, <laughs> and Digital Cash Network is where you can find most of my, my other stuff. And at some point, I'll, I'll have like a, a website I can link to people that do, does other stuff. But still building that out right now. Love it. Well, this has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, our guest today has been Joel Valenzuela. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Always happy to be on.